Sometimes when people ask you, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? They don't recognize what we mean by that. But very often, of course, when, you know, I see these uh, talk show hosts and they corner some guy and they say, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? What they are really saying is you don't believe that the moral dictates in the Bible actually apply today, do you? Literally. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of Revelation. Although this book can be challenging, and for some it can even be frightening, Dr. Brogy is committed to clearly explaining all 22 chapters in a manner that will be easily understood. And for those who have shied away from Revelation because its content can be disturbing, Pastor Carl will explain the decisions we can make and that we can lead others to make that will give us a piece about the end times. In yesterday's message, we began an overview of Revelation, and Dr. Brogy explained that there are four major interpretations about this apocalyptic book. As we pick up, he finishes discussing the allegorical view and begins looking at the preterist view. There's a fellow by the name of Origen in the second century who allegorically interpreted the book of Revelation, and then St. Augustine in the fourth century really made it a prominent view. And so, for instance, the tribulation period that is written of in the book of Revelation, they said, well, that's the internal conflict from within between, you know, sin and the pain and the consequences that it brings, not an actual literal event. Um, some allegorical people, especially liberal Protestant theologians, say there's not a literal second coming from heaven, that Jesus just comes in our hearts and he rises up in our hearts and towards the end he'll rise up in more people's hearts. This is why it's important when you join a church to define terms because people mean all kinds of things. They can read the same historic creed and mean totally different from what it originally was intended to mean. So they refer to the Bible as inspired like Shakespeare, or it's inspired in spots, and you have to be inspired to spot the spots. That's why you've got churches debating over certain moral issues. Or uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and we're all sons and daughters of God, but He's not God the Son. That's how they reason. Or Jesus will not actually come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. He just rises up in our hearts. It's a lot of mishmash. And so the Antichrist is not a real person. He just pictures a satanically inspired political system that fights the church. The problem with this view, the problem with the allegorical interpretation of Scripture is, number one, you make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Let me tell you what it means. And you get on some drug maybe and come up with some psychedelic interpretation. But number one, why don't I believe that? Because it denies, first of all, the model that God left within Scripture on how to interpret Scripture. For instance, when we're studying the book of Daniel, the ninth chapter, it opened with Daniel reading a prophecy written by Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be carried to Babylon for 70 years. And he's towards right the end of that 70 years. He, he believed that that was a literal, actual prophecy. When you read the apostles in the New Testament interfacing with the Old Testament, when you read the Lord Jesus intertwining his teachings with the Old Testament, he applies it literally. He literally interprets the Bible. He doesn't take an allegorical approach to the Scripture. So the no-time view is a lot of nonsense. But there are some people today, especially in liberal Protestantism, 
that still teach this. Second, there's what we call the preterist view. Praetor is the Latin word for past. And you know there are a lot of terms like the one written on the front of the pulpit, like the five in the stained glass behind us, that come from Latin. Why? Because for a thousand years, Latin was the principal translation that the church read. Praetor means past. And so the Praetor's view takes the book of Revelation or even the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and they said it was all fulfilled in the past. Now, there are two kinds of preterists. There are what you call a full preterist and a partial preterist. A full preterist says everything in Revelation has been fulfilled. Even the second coming that we're actually living right now in the new eternal state. Well, if we're living in heaven, God must have put me in the ghetto because it just, just doesn't seem right to me. But most of the preterists are what we call partial preterists. And they say everything has been fulfilled in the past with the exception of Jesus' physical return from heaven. Now, this view was started by a Roman Catholic Jesuit by the name of Luis de Alica. And he came up with this view in response to Luther and Calvin, who held to a third view that we'll look at in a moment, who said that the Pope in their day was the Antichrist. And so, not wanting the Pope to be the Antichrist, since he obeyed the Pope, he made everything in Revelation as having been fulfilled way back yonder. And again, this goes against all sound scholarship. Number one, it denies the date of Revelation that no one debated for centuries, that it was written in the 90s, not before 70 AD. In addition, when you read the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the preterist interpretation indicates that um, these, uh, it just doesn't fit. These are not first-generation churches in chapters 2 and 3. These are second-generation churches. Think about it. One of the seven churches that he's going to mention is the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church. And when you read Ephesians, you discover it's one of the healthiest churches in all of the New Testament. But when you come to the Revelation, you discover that it's not all that healthy. That this was a people who had abandoned, left their first love. And Jesus warns them of a heresy that didn't even exist in Paul's day. And so, if the book of Revelation was all fulfilled 70 AD or before, Paul, which wrote Ephesians closer to that date, it just doesn't match. Or take this church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. As far as we know, that church didn't even exist when Paul walked upon the earth. Or take the church of Laodicea. Three times, Paul commends the church at Laodicea in the book of Colossians. He wrote Colossians around 62 AD, but Jesus rebukes the church at Laodicea. Why? Because it is a second generation church. And so the preterist view does not by any stretch fit the rest of the New Testament in the historical setting. Another problem with this view is that the events that are described in the Olivet Discourse and that are described in the book of Revelation have no match whatsoever. For instance, when Jesus described his second coming from heaven, he said in Matthew chapter 24, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Hank Hanegraaff, a preterist, said, well, this is a description, not of the second coming of Christ, but the Roman army advancing against Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
Well, the problem with that is, number one, the Roman army didn't advance east to west. They advanced west to east. And their attack was not sudden like lightning from heaven, a flash. It was actually a three-year siege from 67 to 70 A.D. Not to mention Titus never fulfilled what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, which we will see explained in the book of Revelation, the abomination of desolation. Titus didn't go into the temple and present himself as a god. In fact, the temple was destroyed in the siege. It was burned to the ground and every rock was pried apart to get the gold just as Jesus prophesied. And so you have to allegorize and spiritualize a lot. But preterists basically see the book of Revelation as a history book. And this position, uh, which comes out of Roman Catholicism, is held by Hank Hanegraaff, R.C. Sproul, and a bunch of other people I won't mention. It does the Bible injustice. Remember, in describing the time frame that we're going to study in the Revelation, Jesus said this, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The preterist view denies that. It overlooks that there is coming a time that had God himself not intervened, no one on earth would have survived. Now, there's a third view. It's called the historist view. It's what we might call the present time view. The historist view teaches that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled during the church age, that sometime during the last 2,000 years, it is being fulfilled. It's not over yet in their mind, but to come up with a historical correlation between what you read in Revelation with past history, you have to have a really creative imagination. In other words, all the symbols in the book of Revelation represent the course of history. The historists would uh, make various popes, leaders of certain movements that you're going to describe. Uh, the French Revolution, Charlemagne, they'd see all these guys in the book of Revelation. So the locusts, for instance, uh, they refer to monks and friars. Muhammad, he's a picture of the fallen star. Elizabeth I, she's the first bold judgment. Uh, Adolf Hitler, he's the rider on the red horse. And on and on and on and on it goes. Dr. John Walford, who is the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there as a student, he would remind us that there are no two expositors of this particular view who can come up with the exact same position. So the method of interpretation is very shaky. There's no precedent for it anywhere in the Bible. Not to mention that virtually all of their interpretation focuses on the Western church and it totally ignores born-again Christians in Asia and on the East. But it's been held by people like Luther or Calvin and Swingley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Spurgeon. And you can see how Luther and Calvin would be propelled to this view because they wanted to make the Pope the Antichrist. So the Pope in their day, the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it talks about the Pope being the Antichrist, and it may very well be that he will be the leader of this church that we're going to study. But they said the, anti, the Pope in their day was the literal Antichrist because of the historic interpretation. But driving this interpretation is what's known as replacement theology. You say, what's that? Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel. And it comes out of a really anti-Semitic spirit. When you go to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, so, so to speak, in Israel, it's embarrassing 
Because when you walk in, the first exhibit are quotes by people like St. Augustine and some of the awful things they said. Luther said some awful things about the Jews. Calvin said some awful things about the Jews. Terrible things. But replacement theology said God is done with the Jew. Roman Catholics came up with it. They said, we are the chosen people, the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers put a different spin on it. They said the institution of Rome is not the chosen people. It's all born-again Christians. But it was still replacement theology. But God made some promises. We will study them. We study them in Daniel. We'll study them again in Revelation. They were unconditional that God is going to keep concerning the Jewish people, and he will use Israel to bring Jesus back from heaven. It is not by accident that God has gathered the Jewish people back in the land. When they overtook the land in 1948, there were 600,000 Jews there. There's over 7 million there today. And there's only, depending on who you read, somewhere between 12 and 14 million Jews on the planet. But that little speck of land, the sign of Delaware, with a little speck of people in comparison to 7.6 billion, is the nation God will use to bring Christ's return. The fourth view, which most evangelical Bible-believing Christians hold to today, is called the futurist view. And they basically take a straightforward, normal reading of the Scripture. Futurists apply a literal approach to interpreting Revelation. Just like we took a literal approach, as did Jesus, as did Daniel, to interpreting the prophet Daniel. And so in chapters 4 through 19, they would say, no, that's a literal seven-year period known as the tribulation, which Jesus quotes. He quotes the prophet Daniel, and he links it to his second coming. The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are actual judgments that are yet to come. The, 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 the political leader called the Antichrist in Revelation 13 is a real person yet to come. In chapter 17, that one world religion is a real one world religion, a false church yet to come. And in chapters 19 and 20, when Jesus comes back from heaven, he will literally come back from heaven and rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. And create, as chapters 21 and 22 teaches, a new heaven and a new earth on which the new Jerusalem, where people go today when they die, that will literally come down and become the capital of this whole ball of wax we might call heaven. And so they take what Revelation 1.19 says, the things which shall take place after these things. And so when you read the book of Revelation, 333 of the 404 verses deal with the future. And so if you apply just a literal interpretation to Revelation which is the way in which the writers of the New Testament interpreted Scripture. God left a model within the Bible on how to approach the Scripture. You can come to no other conclusion. So we argue for a literal or a plain interpretation. And I prefer the word plain interpretation because sometimes when people ask you, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? They don't recognize what we mean by that. But very often, of course, when, you know, I see these uh, talk show hosts and they corner some guy and they say, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? What they are really saying is you don't believe that the moral dictates in the Bible actually apply today, do you? Literally. Because I want to affirm 
transgenderism as a way of life, or I want to affirm homosexuality as a way of life, or I want to live in my adultery or my fornication, and judge not lest you be judged. And they argue against plainly interpreting the scripture, though you have to literally interpret their words when they interview you. But oh no, when you read the scripture, you can't do that. You just discount it. Now, let me say I prefer to call it today a plain interpretation because futurists recognize laws of grammar. The so-called literalist does not deny figurative language. But figurative language does not justify an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. Unless the Bible says something is an allegory, you shouldn't interpret it as an allegory. And let me just say parenthetically, a good rule of thumb is if it's new, it's not true. If someone reads the Bible and they see something that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, I can promise you they've misunderstood the text. Now, some will attack the futurist view and they say, oh, the rapture view, that's a new doctrine. We're going to blow that straw man up with spiritual dynamite before we are done. So this position takes a straightforward approach to interpreting the Scripture. Now, let me just say parenthetically, one of the reasons so many wacky interpretations are made over Revelation is because of the Old Testament in Revelation. There are 404 verses in Revelation. 300 of them are direct references to the Old Testament. Now, John never once says, Isaiah says, or uh, Hosea says and introduces an Old Testament quote, though if you have the New American Standard, you will see when there is a direct quote in large typeset as you do in other books of the Bible. But there are many allusions. Oh yeah, I remember reading about that in Moses. Not quoting, but just a, a, a picture that comes out of the Old Testament. And because today people don't know the Old Testament, they have trouble understanding the book of Revelation. But Revelation becomes a blessing because the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the second coming of Messiah sometimes found in the same verse. We study that in Daniel. Sometimes in a single verse, you'd have the first and second comings together. But they're scattered in the Torah and the prophets and the writings. The beauty of Revelation is God takes all of these Old Testament prophecies and he puts them in chronological order for you so you can see how they will unfold. And so 24 different books of the Old Testament are quoted in the book of Revelation. There's 13 references to Genesis, for instance, 27 from Exodus, 43 from Psalms, 79 from Isaiah, 53 from Daniel, and on and on and on I could go. So much of how to interpret Revelation is just to apply the same principle of interpretation that God uses in the Old Testament. How did God fulfill the prophecies for the first coming of, the, of Jesus? Literally. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. What does that mean? Bethlehem. I mean, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Every single one of the 333 prophecies for the first coming of Christ were literally fulfilled. And to come up with some new hermeneutic, new principle of interpretation for the New Testament is absolute nonsense. All right? That's by way of introduction. It's important. You might want to go back if this is kind of heavy for you and, and uh, replay it at searchthescriptures.org. Now, three simple truths from the first three verses. That's as far as we'll get today. I thought you were going to talk about the 144,000 and the Antichrist today. Hang around for a year. We'll get there, okay? <laughs> first, we want to consider the central person of the revelation, the central person. Let's read again the opening verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. 
I want you to notice that the title of the verse is singular. The title of this book is singular and not plural. Often we hear believers or unbelievers or occasionally a pastor took me to lunch about a year ago. He said, I'm going to teach the book of Revelations. I thought, I'm not sure he's read the first verse. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's a singular noun in Greek. It's one revelation. There is a unified content, a lot of visions and symbols, but it's all unified under one unveiling, un, one revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. Say apocalypsis. See, you all know Greek. You're scholars. It's fantastic. What does the word apocalypsis mean? It means to unveil. It means to take something that is hidden and unveil it. Interestingly, the book of Revelation is a closed book to many people when God actually wants to unveil Jesus Christ in this book. This book is not entitled The Mystery of Jesus Christ. It's not called The Puzzle of Jesus Christ. It's called literally The Unveiling of Jesus Christ or The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet to many, it seems like a closed book because of the way it has been abused with a faulty principle of interpretation. Now, apocalypsis means to unveil. Maybe a good picture is, uh, you know, you go to some unveiling. There's some statue of some famous person, and it's all draped in cloth, and, and then they pull the cloth off, and they unveil it. God is going to unveil Jesus Christ in a way that you've never seen him in his earthly life here in this book, The Revelation. Now, there have been some faulty titles that have been given to the book. The Geneva Bible of 1599, which some translations of the King James followed. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, there are three different titles you will read depending on who published your King James Bible. Some will call it the Revelation of St. John the Divine. By divine, it's not a word in this century like God. Divine meant theologian. Uh, back in uh, that day. So, uh, the revelation of St. John the Divine. Or some translations of the King James say, the revelation of St. John. Most publishers today just say, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that comes right out of the first line. Now, understand, the uh, book titles are not inspired by God. They're not in the original any more than the chapter and verse divisions are. They're put there by publishers to help us find our way around the Bible. So like some of the titles in the Jewish Bible are different from our English Bible. In our English Bible, we call the first book Genesis. It comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Jews call it Barashit, the first word in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I have a, in my study a King James Bible that says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews uh, in a King James Bible. Paul didn't write Hebrews, I hate to tell him. Uh, we don't know for certain who wrote Hebrews, but we know for certain Paul didn't write it based on the information that is found there. So this is not a revelation of John the Divine. He's not saying, we're going to tell you in this book all about St. John the Divine. No, this book is about Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He's the hero of this book. In fact, he's the hero of the whole Bible, all 66 
books. It's about Jesus. The revelation, it's a genitive. Some of you had modern English when you were in high school, which was a failure in the American system. You needed to learn real English. When I went to seminary, I discovered I got to go back and learn real English grammar to understand Greek grammar. But this is a possessive thing. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He owns it. Because it is about him. And what is interesting is not only is Jesus revealed, we will see that he is doing the revealing. Let's read a little bit further. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God the Father gave this revelation to God the Son. A careful reader is going to ask, in what sense? Was God the Father showing the omniscient, glorified Son of God something he didn't obviously know? Obviously not, because he is omniscient. So in what sense did God give it? Now remember within the Trinity, God affirms the equality of Father, Son, and Spirit. But while they are equal, they are given different roles, just like in a marriage. A man is equal to his wife, but he is called the leader. He is called the head of the home. So, for instance, when Paul describes that truth in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so, within the Trinity itself, the Father takes the leadership role. With that said, he gives this revelation to Jesus Christ, because as we study Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus is going to enact the truth that is here. He's going to be the mediator of these truths. He's going to dispense the judgments that are described in this great book. Let's read further. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show. Again, this is an unveiling. God wants you to see something. To show who? To show his bondservants. Now, the apostle John calls himself a bondservant, and then the plural is used here to describe Christians at large. We are bondservants. So, if you are the Lord's bondservant this morning, if you've been saved by grace through faith, God the Father gave permission to God the Son for you to read and understand the book of Revelation. John describes himself as a bondservant, and he describes us as that way. It's the word doulos. It's not the word diaconist that is usually translated servant. It's the word doulos that is translated slave or bond slave. But understand, when the New Testament applies this to believers, it's not an involuntary slavery like we had in America which was an abomination to God. It is a voluntary slavery. Understand, in Rome, when the Roman culture would take over people, they didn't put everybody in prison, but they made them slaves. You could be a doctor, or a lawyer, or a scholar, or a, uh, a tradesman, and you would be assigned to a Roman family. That's why in the early church, you have believers and unbelievers together where one is the master and the other is the slave and instruction is given because you are assigned slaves by the Roman government. The culture of the first century was such that the vast majority of individuals were in servitude to a minority comprised of Roman citizens. Often families would be required to work off an indebtedness for a period of time. But the slave-master relationships of the first century were often very amicable, such that at the end of the required period of service, Families would continue to serve those whom they formerly had been legally required to serve. 
These individuals came to be known as bond servants. And this is the term John uses to describe Christians who, of their own free will, had committed themselves to Christ. You can listen again to this or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation by using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or by visiting our website, searchthescriptures.org. And for information about Search the Scriptures or to help support this teaching and evangelistic ministry, call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we conclude our overview of the book of Revelation, and then Thursday we'll begin a deep dive into chapter 1. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.